Medichlorians are raising Colorado above the surrounding states. Do you believe me? Yeah, that got real nerdy real fast. This is the Exploring the National Parks podcast with Dirt in My Shoes. My name is Ash, and I'm a former park ranger and the founder of Dirt in My Shoes. I think that the parks are best seen from the trail, and I'm here to make national park trip planning easy. And I'm John. I carry the kids on the trails, I tell stories, and notice all the things that Ash doesn't care about much, like rocks. Join us as we show you around America's spectacular national parks. We're sharing our favorite places, fun facts, adventures, and misadventures. And we'll even throw in a little trip planning. Let's start exploring. Before we start, I just would like to state that this park was so surprising to me. Okay. It was I, I thought that I understood how mountains generally were made and things like this. But this one really blew me away. And not to keep everybody in suspense, but wow. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> John comes to me yesterday and he was like looking so downtrodden because he was like, I can't find anything I need on the Rocky Mountain website. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. It's so funny when you're navigating through the NPS.gov site, like some parks have just a plethora of information oh, yeah. about everything. And some parks, you know, I found this as I'm like writing articles and trying to link to things and trying to help people navigate stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh, why doesn't this park have that page that I need? <laughs> there is definitely no standardization <laughs> no. between parks. No. So John's like, Rocky Mountain website doesn't have anything. Oh so my gosh. You're going to hear it here. All the good stuff that you can't find on the nps.gov site. Oh, John man. has done the hard work to give us these fun facts. All right. This will be fun. Interesting. Hopefully, I don't screw it up. There's no one to check because there's no website. And web, there's no web page that has it. Yes, exactly. Well, <laughs> well, like she said, like Ash said, this is Rocky Mountain National Park fun facts episode, and I'm really pumped. This is going to be fun. But what's going to be kind of interesting about this episode, I think, is that it's. I mean, honestly, we're going to focus on the mountains a lot because. Well, that's the main thing. Right. About Rocky. So I'm excited about that. It does that. kind of make sense. It's named it Rocky Mountain. It does. Yeah. It's it's a mountain place. Not Rocky Mountain and Friends. Yeah. Rocky Mountain Lakes. <laughs> exactly. Okay. No, this is going to be great. I'm, I'm really pumped. So fun fact number one, the rocks in Rocky are old. Some of the main foundation rocks for the park and the mountains here are 1.8 billion years old. Nice. And that's really old. Yeah. So to put that in perspective, the bottom of the Grand Canyon, some of the Vishnu basement rocks down there are around that same age. Okay. And that's awesome. And But but compared to like some other parks, like Badlands National Park, or if you go up to Bryce Canyon National Park, some of those only go back, like the very top layers of those are like 20 to 30 million years old. And mm-hmm. so the fact that a lot of the rocks that you're going to see in Rocky are that old is really impressive. The era that that came from is pre-Cambrian era. Sometimes we just hear these words. I know. I'm like, I know we've talked about that before, but... You covered it in seventh grade geology, (laughs) you know, but you haven't had to cover it since. And even then, when your teacher was like, pre-Cambrian... (laughs) Post-Cambrian... Post-Cambrian. Pre-Cambrian, Cambrian. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. <laughs> that would make sense, but I don't think they'd do that. Oh, uh, I wish how they confusing. Did. That would have made it stick better in my seventh grade brain. <laughs> yeah. But basically what the pre-Cambrian is, is it's the age of early life. So that's when stuff here on the planet was like really young. Life was really young. There really wasn't much on land. Most everything was like worms and plants just in the oceans okay. and stuff like that. So that's how old these rocks were. But during this time, where was Rocky Mountain? At? Under a shallow sea. Deeper. Under a deep sea. Under a deep sea. It's <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite questions to ask when we do this. But yeah, so Not only was it under a deep sea, but a lot of the stuff that you're seeing that's 1.8 billion years old was even under more and more layers than that. Hmm. And so we're talking 
like five to 10 miles deep down okay. underneath the earth right here. Wow. And so it's really deep. And because it was under the ocean, you just had lots and lots of layers of sediment being laid down, being laid down layer upon layer upon layer. And what these 1.8 billion year old rocks, the reason we're going to focus on those so much is because with eons of these layers being compacted and pushed further and further down, this is where some really big, important changes started to happen. So you have all these different layers, they're being smashed together. And because they're so deep underground, they're closer to the center of the earth. And so not only are they getting smashed, but they're being heated. Mm -hmm. And so this is where like the different kinds of rock start to matter. So you've got sedimentary rock. Those are the layers that are just being laid down on top of each other. Mm -hmm. And then you've got metamorphic rock. And those are rocks that are being heated and pressurized, but not hot enough to melt. And igneous rocks are rocks that are actually melted together. Okay. Okay. And so here, these metamorphic rocks, they were heated and pressurized, some of them up to like a thousand degrees, which is crazy. And then these layers were mashed and then they became a different kind of rock, a metamorphic rock. And most of them you've heard about, if you've listened to other fun facts episode, you've heard of these. One of them is nice. Mm -hmm. And G the other one G -N -E -I -S -S. is... G-N-E-I-S-S. Yes, exactly. And the other one is schist. Okay. And the main difference between these types is that what they're made of, basically. And so, depending on what the layers were smashed together, what those layers were, de kind of depends on if it's schist or nice. Okay. So, basically, it's a recipe. The recipe for schist is different than the recipe for nice. And schist... So you'll you'll kind of see these as you walk around the park and as you explore Rocky Mountain, you'll see these rocks and sometimes you can even feel them. Schist generally has finer grains that make it harder to see like the individual rock crystals. So they're smaller grains and it's somewhat smoother to the touch. Okay. Nice has larger, coarser grains that you can easily see with your naked eye, the individual crystals, and it is generally rough to the touch. Okay. So it's just colors. The colors can be light and dark. Anything. Both okay. of them. But one is generally a little bit smoother, you know, and then the other one. Okay. Is really what it is. It's all about the ingredients. Now, why am I telling you this? Because Rocky has such amazing rocks, obviously. And as you walk along, even some of these shortest trails that, you know, from the Bear Lake area, especially, one of my favorite trails to rock along is the one to Emerald Lake. And you don't even have to make it. There's three lakes along the way. You don't even have to make it to the first lake to notice some of these boulders and rocks just sitting on the side of the trail. And as you go along, you'll see, you can just look at it and be like, oh my gosh, look at those amazing designs and colors and swirls and stripes. And you can see different kinds of crystals. I mean, we just got back from a trip to Rocky and the entire time I was hiking along that trail, I was thinking, I've got to talk about these rocks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They're so cool. They're so beautiful. And uh, I mean, the journey they go on is incredible. And this is just the beginning. So those are the 1.8 billion year old rocks. Okay. The schist and the gneiss. Okay. Now, right here, I'm going to make a joke that somewhat resembles Chevy Chase's Vegas vacation Hoover Dam joke. If you've ever seen the movie, I don't think Ash knows that No joke. blank stares coming from this side of the room. <laughs> it's a fun little joke and it has to do with geology. So Does it's it have totally... to do with schist? <laughs> I'm not going to ruin my joke. <laughs> I'm just guessing okay. based on the direction that I know your brain likes to go. Exactly. But this joke, I think often during family trips, you know, if on the Bryce Canyon episode, I talked about ELE. Everybody love everybody. Uh -huh. You know, yep. this is another joke that you can make to if somebody in the family gets a little attitude or, you know, gets a little grumpy. This is the perfect joke to make to break that up a little bit and okay. make somebody laugh. Okay. Now, for the joke to have maximum effectiveness, you can use your own nickname, preferably one that you give yourself that other people haven't fully bought into. You know, like if I call myself Maverick. You know, okay. Ash hasn't really <laughs> yeah. bought into nope, that one. No, I have not. But if you want to be completely like geology ready, just use the word granite. Okay. That's the nickname. And you have to say it like Mr. T. Granite, don't take no schist. Be nice. Oh my gosh. 
That's so good. That's so good. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Granted, don't take no schist. I knew it was going to have to do a schist. Be nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And then you can follow up with a little ELE if you need to. Yeah, yeah. That that should keep the kids from fighting. Sure. <laughs> it might make it worse, but either way, it's probably satisfying for the purple person <laughs> saying the joke. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, maybe you'll get a, just a bunch of blank stares. Maybe. From it will break up the fighting because nobody knows what you're talking about. Exactly. All right. Back to Rocky Mountain. We've got all these dark and light colorful layers that have been smashed and heated. So you've got schist and nice. And that was 1.8 billion years ago. But then something really important happened. Between 1.7 and 1.4 billion years ago, at least two large magma chambers forced their way up into the schist and into the gneiss. And when it did this, it cracked and fractured and melted and displaced a lot of rock that was there. And this happened a couple of times, and the different invasions of the magma created lots of really cool formations. My favorite of which is giant fractures that got filled in by a rock called pegmatite. Aha, uh-huh, we saw that at Black Canyon. Yes, exactly. That was one of my, it's probably the best example. The best example. Yeah. So if you've never been to Black Canyon, just Google Black Canyon painted, painted wall. wall. Yeah. Okay. And you'll be able to see exactly what I'm talking about. You've got this amazing black wall, and then inside this wall, you've just got like lightning strikes of pegmatite that are just like striking through the rock. It's really impressive. Yeah, it's really cool. And that same thing happened here at Rocky. Okay. And so the magma came up, it fractured the rock, parts of it like did this cool lightning thing that we talked about. And then the second one, this that, then it cooled down. But then there was a second magma invasion. Now, the different invasions of magma have different colors, and they both cooled to be basically granite. But the first invasion was a darker gray. Okay. The second invasion of magma was a lighter gray, but it brought along with it beautiful pink feldspar. And you will see that when you're hiking through Rocky. Yeah. It's awesome. You'll notice the color. Be like, that's interesting. It's the same color. So... It's the same color that we talked about, the pink feldspar in the granite at Acadia. Okay. And so it's that but it's same. it's just kind of, you know, sprinkled throughout. Yes. It's not the full rocks like exactly. it is in Acadia. So, so in these rocks and in these boulders as you're hiking, what you'll see is you'll see light granite, dark schist, or, and then darker granite, and then dark nice, you know, and mixed in with pink and clear and all these different crystals. And it's just swirled and layered and striped and folded and everything in all these different ways. And these rocks are just all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know, you're hiking on them or you're just walking right by them. And it's awesome. They have all, there's just so many different unique formations that you can appreciate as you're walking around. And it's so easily accessible. This is the time that I insert my rangerness and say, that our kids noticed how sparkly and stuff the rocks are in Rocky while you hike. Mm-hmm. Make sure that they don't take the rocks from the park. We right. leave no trace. We leave them there so everyone can enjoy. You might be tempted because there are some really pretty rocks in this park, but just leave them there. We always, to kind of help our kids understand that better and, you know, placate them when they're upset <laughs> we have them hold the rock and and we take a picture of them with the rock right and then have them put it away then right. that has been really effective yes. as we've been trying to teach our kids leave no trace but yeah i mean you will find some really beautiful sparkly rocks in this park right <laughs> and a lot of the ones that i'm talking about i mean you can appreciate the small handheld ones but what i'm talking about some of these ones big boulders big boulders yeah and things you can't take with you <laughs> yes exactly if you could <laughs> I mean, if, if someone lifted that up, Mr. Incredible, you know, he's one of the only ones yeah. that would be able to do it. But no, they're just amazing. You'll notice them all around you. And you're probably wondering, okay, this is 1.8, 1.4 billion years ago. But this event of the magma and everything plays a really important part in the formation of these mountains. But they have, it's a really cool process, igneous metamorphic rocks, you know, but it, the only problem is that it has a name that is really hard to take seriously. Okay. And so it's known as the Boulder Creek Batholith. Batholith? 
<laughs> I feel like I have a lisp. Batholith? Exactly. Batholith. That Boulder is so Creek fun. Batholith. I love that. That is such a fun word. Oh my gosh. I mean, I just described like this amazingly powerful, strong, striking process not to be <laughs> named like F the not to be named after something with those same adjectives, right. you know, something that causes images of Chuck Norris, you know, yeah. or Tom Selleck to appear in your brain. But instead, we get like Boulder Creek Batholith. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, I just feel like it does an amazing Say it. disservice. Say it out loud. Batholith. If you're listening. Yeah. If you're listening, try it. It's really fun to oh, say. I thought you were talking to no, me. No, not you. Say you've it said, out loud. Yeah. No, you've said it plenty of times. <laughs> try it. It's fun. Oh, my gosh. But it kind of reminds me, like, not being able to take it seriously, it reminds me of that scene from Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets when, like, they're in the transfiguration class and Ron has just unsuccessfully, you know, transfigured scabbers into, like, a cup with, a furry cup with a tail and he's squeaking, you know. And then Hermione's like, Professor, I was wondering if you could tell us about the Chamber of Secrets, you know. And Professor McGonagall goes on and she's like, talks about the four founding wizards and witches, you know, and goes in, into depth about them and then talks about how Salazar Slytherin left. But shortly before departing, Slytherin had built a hidden chamber in the castle known as the Chamber of Secrets. He then sealed it until the time that his own true heir returned to the school and his heir alone would be able to open the chamber and unleash the horror within. By so doing, purge the school of all those who, in Slytherin's view, were unworthy to study magic. Well, naturally, the school has been searched many times. No chamber has been found, but the chamber is said to be home to something that only the heir of Slytherin can control. Now, imagine the scene changes ever so slightly so that she then tells them... <laughs> the well, batholith? <laughs> the, the chamber is said to be home to a batholith. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I just feel like... All the students would be like, oh, we'll be fine. Yeah. We'll be okay. So it's just a batholith. <laughs> just a batholith. <laughs> and then like any kid that got petrified by a batholith, they'd be like, probably deserved it. <laughs> be like a little bit more on the Slytherin side of things. Anybody that can't take a batholith shouldn't be here. <laughs> Stupid cat. <laughs> Colin. Uh, I hate to talk about Colin because of how it, things end up, but I mean. It was honestly, a batholith. He was a batholith. <laughs> yeah. I never understood in that movie, by the way, how, like, in school nowadays, kids can't take in their cell phones because they're too big of a distraction. But then you've got, like, Colin Creevy, and he's taking in, like, a camera the size of, like, a mini fridge, and he's just walking around the school with it. <laughs> just like, I don't, I, don't, I don't get it. Anyways, back to Rocky Mountain. I took a little tour of Hogwarts for a second. <laughs> I never understood the importance of a K at the end of the yeah, word. Yeah, So anyways, the Batholith. So anyways, this is one of the major things that we do know about the history of Rocky Mountain National Park. And it's awesome. Ancient stone layers doing battle with magma from the epic deep of the underworld. And the result is basically the foundation of the mountains and a lot of the rock that you see in the park. So how did all those rock get from like five to 10 miles deep? You know, how did it get to like 12 to 14,000 feet above sea level? I don't know. It's a good question. Okay, so now we're going to jump to fun fact number two. The force is raising the Rocky Mountains. Is it? Yes. Medichlorians are raising Colorado above the surrounding states. Do you that believe got, me? Yeah, that got real nerdy real fast. So, <laughs> sure. You remember that scene in Empire Strikes no, Back? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> from, from Star Wars. We're in Star Wars now. When Yoda raises the X-Wing out of the swamp. Oh, yeah. Actually, I do remember okay, that so scene. Pretty okay. epic scene. It's hard okay. to forget. Yeah. That is what's happening in Rocky Mountain National Park. Yoda. Yoda. Okay. Okay. Let me explain why. Geologists don't know why Rocky Mountain is so high. Okay. In fact, they don't know why Colorado is so high. Really? They don't know? <laughs> <laughs> they have no definitive explanation for why Colorado is higher than Kansas, Texas, or any of the Plain states. That bugs me. I feel like <laughs> we should know that. <laughs> okay. Now, geologists have an idea. Okay. They have an idea that they think is a possible answer to the question of why Rocky is so high, but they don't know for certain if it's the answer. This is the theory that Colorado is more buoyant. <laughs> they think it's floating higher on the mantle than other states. Because it's more hydrated. So this is the process. 
in simple terms, this is just one theory. They think that an ancient continent that went under the West Coast shoved a bunch of water up into Colorado like a medical procedure, hydrating it and causing some chemical changes that make it more buoyant than some of the plain oh, states. Oh my gosh. What? Yeah. Just Colorado? So because there are no active faults or tectonic plates crashing that can explain why Colorado is so high. No, there's no active faults in Colorado. There's like some smaller faults, like even in Rocky Mountain, there's some faults, you know, where some things slide up and down a little bit, but nothing big enough to explain the whole process of why Colorado is so high. Now, are we talking about the whole state of Colorado or are we mostly referring to like the Colorado Plateau? So I don't think it refers to the entire Colorado Plateau and West. It's simply just like probably central and northern Colorado. It's just higher. It's and just, we don't know it's why. It's really high. Like there's I mean, literally... it is high. It's crazy when you're in Colorado and you're driving around and it's like, I mean, we just drove through Leadville, uh-huh. which is 10,000 feet above sea level. And then it's just surrounded by these 14,000 foot mountains. Right. But it doesn't feel high. Yeah. It doesn't feel that high. Right. It feels like you're just on the ground. Exactly. So Colorado, when you drive through Colorado, it kind of blows your mind because it's like, well, we're high, but but it doesn't, I don't feel like I'm that high. Exactly. It's crazy. But basically, as far as they can tell, Colorado literally should be a lot, at least the eastern side of Colorado should be a lot more like Kansas than it is, you know, flattened. It should be a lot flatter and lower. And, well, okay. and all the documents and online publications and NPS information that I found, they kept saying uplift raised the land. And this was accompanied by uplift. An uplifting force raised the land to whatever elevation. But it never explained as simply as it, like in the Tetons. Like in the Tetons, you know, there's an earthquake that happens along a specific fault. And, you know, because because there's some tectonic stuff going on right there, there's an earthquake. The mountains go up, the valley goes down, about a 10-foot thing. That happens, boom, every time. So they can easily explain what happens there. But then that's a full and easy explanation to understand. Here in Rocky, you assume that they know. And in some places, they even admit that they don't know. But the fact that they don't know is still kind of glossed over (laughs) because they keep saying uplifting forces instead of just saying something under the earth keeps pushing this place up and then X And we don't know. Yeah. So it is Yoda. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm sticking with the force. (laughs) You know, I, I, I don't know. Because literally, that's what they keep saying. And in the in a couple of the in one of the articles, they actually quoted a geologist that he was doing like a interview with somebody from the UK or something like that. And the guy from UK was like, "So man, it, the air is so thin up here. Why is Colorado so high?" And he was like, uh, <laughs> "We don't really know." And no then idea. like he's quoted saying, "We really need to find this out, guys, because it's kind of embarrassing." <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. And I mean, there's a couple of bits of evidence that somewhat corroborate the theory that Colorado is more hydrated and thus more buoyant on top of the mantle and th- so that it floats higher. But correlation doesn't mean causation. Yeah. Is basically what they're saying. What a lot of these geologists and scientists are saying is it, it's an idea, but we have very little proof to say this is why. You know, that's just what I love. Like, I just think it's so cool that are, there are so many things that we don't know. Yeah. Even though it bugs me a little bit, that's one that I thought we knew. Yeah, <laughs> I think exactly. that's why it bugs me so much. <laughs> I was like, no, we we know that. Yeah. Okay, we don't know that. But that's, I, I love that aspect of things when it's just like, oh, we don't know everything. Yeah. And sometimes you just have to keep asking questions and searching and and you're going to be wrong. Yep. That's actually, I'm okay with that. That's pretty cool. Isn't it kind of crazy that we're like, Elon Musk is trying to take us to Mars and we don't even know why Colorado's higher than Kansas? Yeah, <laughs> it really is. That's so crazy to me. I don't know. It's, it's just really, so yes, I'm sticking with the force. But you know what? I, I decided as I was learning this, I was like, you know what? I have faith in Kansas. That it's going to become more buoyant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that whole Yoda thing with the X-Wing, I was like, the whole situation is straight from Empire Strikes Back. And Colorado's Yoda and Kansas is Luke. And Luke turned out pretty great, but he needed to believe first. Colorado, Yoda and the X-Wing. Think back to that epic scene 
Yoda tells Luke, do or do not. And then there's it. Luke tries and then he tries and the X-Wing ends up sinking further down. So that's Kansas. That's Kansas. Kansas. Come on, you guys. Believe. 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 And then Luke's like, I can't. It's too big. And Yoda's like, size matters not. Look at me. Judge me by my size, do you? Oh, I have the force as an ally. You must feel the force around you. Everywhere. Here. There. Me. The tree. The rock. Everywhere. And then Luke's like, you want the impossible. Just like Kansas. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, Kansas. Come on. We're all rooting for you. And then Yoda, he just like looks down in shame and then he like raises his hand and then he lifts the X-Wing out of the swamp and pulls it over and sets it down on dry ground. And Luke is like, I don't believe it. And Yoda says, and that is why you fail. All right. (laughs) It's a little rough on Kansas. All right. Anyways, I still believe it. It could still happen. It just has to... It needs to become more buoyant. Just a little more buoyant. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Okay, so that's what we know so far. And that's not a whole lot. Really, what we know is 1.8 billion year old rock. We know that story. We don't know what raised it to such a high elevation. But we know about the really old rocks. They're super beautiful and really sturdy. And we know that some mysterious force uplifted everything. And most of that permanent uplift actually happened in a few strong bursts since the time of the dinosaurs. But what you need to know before we get to fun fact number three is that in its heart of hearts, this part of Colorado really wanted to be like Kansas. Okay. Okay. So I've I've kind of given Kansas a hard time, but Colorado, this area really, really wanted to be like it. It's kind of like that kid in church in like the primary performances that's like barely out of primary, but not old enough to be in the teenage youth group. You know, uh-huh. I was that kid in the very back that got his growth spurt before all the other kids. You're like, this is so dumb. Why am I part of this? <laughs> well, not that I was like, I'm so dumb. I was like, no, not you're so dumb, but this is dumb. I, well, yeah, yeah, but not even that. Oh, I'm the kid that got the growth spurt before everybody else. And so everybody, all the kids are standing up there and I'm like the one that's like two feet taller than every other kid. (laughs) And I'm just like slouching as far (laughs) as I possibly can, you know, so that I don't stand out as much as possible. (laughs) It's like Crab and Goyle right next to Malfoy. Or if you like Billy Madison, like when he went back to elementary school, I was like that. Colorado is super high, but it really, really wants to be short like the other kids in primary. So, for most of the park's history, from that 1.8 billion to the mostly the present, basically, it was either at or below sea level for a huge portion of that time. And even when it was above sea level, it stayed as flat and as low as possible. Honestly, it wasn't until after the time of the dinosaurs that the land permanently rose above the sea. And even when it did, it wasn't like burst out of the sea like Atlantis rising and shining forth in all its Rocky Mountain glory. No, it rose gradually, like when you are on the bottom bunk of a bunk bed and like with your feet, you kind of push the mattress up above you to kind of see if you can, mm-hmm. you know, it just kind of pushed a section of it higher. It was stayed relatively flat, just well, like with a little lumpiness. And this happened multiple times. The land would be force lifted up higher than the plains, but like a sandcastle made out of just dry sand, it literally flattened itself out over and over and over again. And even when rivers would cut through the landscape, they would simply move sediment from one place to another and the land crumbled down and flattened itself out again. So over and over again, it would try a little bit to kind of make mountains and canyons and stuff like that. But every time it would just flatten itself out. And even sometimes when it did succeed in making mountains and canyons, volcanoes would literally pop up like right in the area shoot up a whole ton of ash, fill in the canyons, and it was flat again. Nah. And that happened over and over and over again. It's kind of frustrating, actually, as you're like reading the history of this place. I'm like, when did the Rocky Mountains get made? It's like, when is this going to happen? And so we have this moundy, flat place over and over and over again that's trying to make mountains, but it just doesn't because it's heart of hearts. It wants to be like Kansas. Colorado just didn't want to stand taller and craggier than its neighbors to the east. It wasn't until literally, like in geologic time, it wasn't until literally last week that the land was lifted to its current height and yesterday that the mountains were carved out. Hmm. 
1.8 billion years of history, geologic time. And it literally like in geologic time, it literally didn't happen until like last week. It's mm. crazy. The final uplift didn't happen till about five to seven million years ago. And even then, one of the articles that I read still said that they called them the flat topped uplands. So basically from Kansas all the way through Colorado up to this point where Rocky is, it was just like this flat upland. There were hmm. no canyons. There were like no mountains. It honestly was kind of bland. Hmm. It did not want to be mountainy. Five to seven million. That's not, even I know that's not very long ago. No. Geologically. No, exactly. I mean, the dinosaurs were 65 million years ago. Yeah. So that means that this happened so not that long ago and the land resisted so hard and it wasn't until the uplift to finally 12,000 feet above sea level these flat uplands finally reached about 12,000 feet above sea level five to seven million years ago and it stayed flat until about two million years ago and that's when these valleys and crags were carved out and it was only thanks to the glaciers brought about by the ice age so that brings us to fun fact number three. Despite millions of years of Colorado trying to stay as flat as possible, glaciers from the Ice Age finally carved out the beautiful mountains and valleys of Rocky Mountain National Park during the last 700,000 years. Whew. Isn't That's that not nuts? very long ago at all. That's crazy. This, this l l place is so crazy. Like, I thought I knew how mountains were made. And mm -hmm. a lot of the mountains we visited have a pretty traditional story. Mm -hmm. These ones are nuts. Yeah. They are the reluctant national park, if you <laughs> ask me. We don't want to be here. <laughs> I'm a lot more comfortable at sea level. Yeah. So, and yeah, they're the highest mountains. Yeah. They had so much time to get built. But literally in geologic time, it's like the paint is still drying. It's like Rembrandt and Monet just finished painting. The paint is barely dry. He hasn't even put his brushes away yet, and millions of people are driving in to see it. Hmm. It's crazy. So we had a pretty big buildup to fun fact number three. So a little bit of a reminder. Fun fact number one was about the 1.8 billion year old rock. Fun fact number two was about how the force is literally raising Colorado up to where it's being uplifted to right now. Fun fact number three is that the glaciers just barely carved out all of these canyons and mountains. So fun fact number three is just to point out how recent all of this happened. Okay, now we're going to move on to fun fact number four. For fun fact number four, so much depended on fun fact number three. So we had kind of had to get those really close together. So Ash, as you drive around Rocky Mountain National Park, we talk about this all the time. How would you describe the general shape of the mountains? Not craggy. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, I mean, I just, yes, the first time I went to Rocky Mountain National Park, because we, I mean, truthfully, we live in the Rocky Mountains. Right. I've grown up in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. And even the mountains here in Utah that are considered part of the Rocky Mountain Range are spikier. Yeah. And like more defined. Right. And so I was expecting that when I went to Rocky Mountain National Park, I just thought, well, you know, it's the same area, basically. It's the same mountains. Right. And then we got there and I really like it really shocked me that the mountains were as high as they were, but they didn't look like regular mountains. It really was more just like mounds. Uh-huh. They're not really craggy in this park. Right. Now, some of the other smaller ranges within the Rocky Mountain range are. Right. But particularly in Rocky Mountain National Park, it's just things are a little more subdued. Yeah. There definitely is areas where you have crags. Yeah. And some rocky outcroppings and things like that. But generally speaking, this is a pretty unique place. I think when you expect, you know, when you know that you're going to see a 14,000 foot mountain, mm -hmm. you just expect it to kind of look a certain way. Right. Well, being and, married to you, I expected it to be a lot more Teton-esque. Yeah. Well, there's nothing like the Tetons. <laughs> or, or the North Cascades, you know. Yeah. Or something along those lines. Basically or some of the Sierras. Basically, mountains. Yeah. Yosemite, Glacier. I mean, all of those parks have big, 
like really recognizable mountains, I feel like. And Rocky, to me, really only has one. (laughs) And that's Long's (laughs) Peak. And then the rest of them, well, I mean, that's not true. There's a few others. Hallett Peak and, and, you know, Mount Craig. There's some that are really recognizable. But I think in general, especially as a first-time visitor, when you get there, you'll be like, you know, they can Mm -hmm. all look the same. Yeah. It's really interesting. It's so different. But the fact that it is different, and this leads us right into fun fact number four, because the moundiness of the mountains makes fun fact number four possible. Fun fact number four is that approximately one third of Rocky Mountain National Park is above the tree line and considered tundra. Golly, geez, that's crazy. Yeah. I don't think... Unless you spend a lot of time in the mountains, I don't think you really understand the weight of that statement. Right. Because one third of the park being above tree line is like, that's unheard of. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Tree line is so hard to get to in general. Like, it takes a lot for the trees to stop growing. Yeah. Exactly. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. a lot of factors that go into that, yes. reaching that point. And, and so, and here at Rocky Mountain, the tree line is often at like 11,000 feet above sea level. And you can see it. Like, it is crazy as you're driving the Trail Ridge Road and you go past uh, like the mini parks curve and rainbow curve. And then you're heading up towards Forest Canyon. Mm-hmm. And as you go between, like, before you get to Forest Canyon, and it's very subtle. Like, you won't notice it really unless you're really paying attention to it. I think most people probably don't even notice. Right. But you're driving towards Forest Canyon and all of a sudden, literally all of a sudden, there's no trees. You're surrounded by trees, the other viewpoints, mm-hmm. and then you just reach a point. Right. And there's no trees anymore. Exactly. And you can see it on the mountains, too. If you Not even when you're driving, but if you just look at the mountains... You can see that it has hit a point and it's usually a pretty solid line Uh where there's just nothing anymore. Right. And that's so cool about Rocky. Yeah. And in a lot of these other mountains where, you know, you have this tree line, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the land above the tree line is like shale or Mm -hmm. like solid granite rock faces. Yeah. You know, there's not anything really growing on it. Yeah. And so... That's one thing that's really spectacular about Rocky Mountain is that this land above the trees, it's a whole separate ecosystem and it's thriving. Yeah. It's a super harsh and challenging ecosystem and climate and place to live. But this one third of the park is this whole ecosystem. And the it's amazing that the Trail Ridge Road can take you straight up there and you can see these brilliant flowers and all these little plants that are up there. I don't know. It's a really unique aspect of Rocky Mountain. And a lot of the fact that we have these moundy mountains is a throwback to the desire for this area to stay like Kansas. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about that for, for, for a minute. But these mountains are actually so moundy that geologists thought for so long that the ecosystem of the tundra on these moundy mountaintops were actually leftover plains ecosystems from Colorado's ancient flat history. So for like for like 40 million years ago, they just thought that the the ecosystem at the or the the land up here was just a holdover or like a relic of the ancient plains. Interesting. Yeah. I mean there are a lot of plants up there. You just you got to get close to the ground to yeah, see them. Exactly. Now, a, a lot of evidence has since disproved that theory that these are just a relic of the ancient world. But the land tried so long to maintain that flat shape that when the glaciers came, it took a while for them to get a real strong foothold, digging deep down and creating the canyons that we see today that would eventually reveal, you know, the schist and the gneiss and the granite that we've been talking about for so long. But the glaciers, they didn't have enough time to completely dig out all of the lighter rocks, you know, only leaving the hardiest and densest granite, like when you go to the Tetons or Yosemite. You know, those high elevation places, usually you just see these granite rock faces. Here at Rocky, because the glaciers only had, like, it's a long time to us, 
but these ice ages were basically the the furthest out that the last ice age went was like two million years, and most of the glaciers did their stuff in the last seven hundred thousand years, and so they didn't have a whole lot of time to dig out all of the easy to remove stuff, and so the flat land was able to maintain its shape a lot more than in other places that we see, and so this high elevation terrain is basically done such a good job at fighting to slouch, you know, mm-hmm. if I bring it back to <laughs> slouchy John, <laughs> exactly that it allows for one third of Rocky mountain to be tundra, making it one of the largest examples of this type of ecosystem protected in the continuous United States. No other mountains are like them. Not the Tetons, not the Cascades, not the Appalachians. Nothing is like these mountains where the glaciers dug deep, you will find craggy rock cirques and canyons, but where the land was unyielding, you can like find the true heart of the area and the preservation of its most valuable resource, the tundra, the flatland. I like that. Actually, that makes me appreciate the moundiness a little bit more Mm -hmm. because it's true. They are so different than the other mountains that we're used to. And I think initially that was a turnoff for me. Right. (laughs) I was like, what the heck is this? (laughs) (laughs) You know, because when you hike, you want to see those really, you know, dramatic views and stuff. And Rocky just doesn't have as much of that. But I think when you really stop to appreciate the tundra ecosystem that is up there, that has been something that has just become really special to me as I go back to Rocky over and over. Mm -hmm. It just every time blows my mind a little bit more that we can even access that area of those mountains so easily. So, Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think as a first time visitor, especially if you go in knowing more about that first, uh-huh. you will have so much of a greater appreciation for it than I did when I went in initially. <laughs> I was just like, oh, it's, it's, uh, it's not that impressive. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You're expecting it to look like the Paramount Mountain. Yeah. You know? And it, well, and- that's, I mean, that's what we celebrate, right? Right. And, and that's what I prefer for sure. But Sometimes, and this is something I've learned over the years of just spending so much time in the parks and and working as a park ranger, sometimes you really have to focus in on those smaller details to appreciate what you're seeing. Right. And I'm not so good at that sometimes. Sometimes I just want the big, loud, this is what it is views to really appreciate it. But I learned this, and this is another area that was really affected by glaciers and is bouncing back is when I worked at Glacier Bay. Mm-hmm. But that's what my supervisor would always say. He'd always say, Ash, the beauty is in the small details here. Mm-hmm. You got to focus on the small details. And I loved that. And I feel like Rocky is one of those places where, yes, you're Rocky Mountain high and you're surrounded by all these massive peaks and it's beautiful, beautiful mountains, but they're different. And the beauty is in the smaller details. Yes, exactly. That's my soapbox. I love it. Because I have been working on that really hard over the years. Mm -hmm. Not to just be like looking for the wow factor all the time. But sometimes the wow factor, once you know a few details, like I feel like I'm never going to look at Rocky Mountain the same. You know, when I visit it now, because I'm like, I have no idea why I'm floating so high. Well, I need to pay attention to the rocks. Yeah. Better. Yeah. You can find some serious wow moments just knowing a few details. And that's what these fun facts today were were really designed to do. And we still have one to go. Oh, I'm excited because I love these. I know. The fifth one. Yes. So fun fact number five is the human history of the area. And I feel like your soapbox was perfect for what we're trying to go into right now. Because the human history here is a little bit different than some of the other name Uh, Name brand. Name brand. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Name brand national parks. (laughs) Yeah. This is the great value version of (laughs) this is the Kroger. These are Equate Mountains. No, this is awesome. But it's just kind of funny. So we talked about how 
I just like to say how he said that this is the lesser, like, cheaper version. <laughs> like, literally, the Rocky Mountains are the king of mountains. They are. So, no offense taken. <laughs> or, you're not allowed to take offense, I no should offense say. No given. Yes. <laughs> it was a joke. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, so the human history here, uh, I think, calls back to your soapbox a little bit really well. But we'll go back before we get to that point. We'll go back a little bit because Rocky Mountain has done a really good job of kind of documenting a lot of the, the main checkpoints of its of its human history here because the Native American people have been here for over 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, that they have found evidence of Clovis Paleo-Indian hunters in the park, you know, as the glaciers retreated from the ice ages. And so they were here taking advantage, man, because there's a lot of wildlife here. That was one thing that a lot of the early Euro-American settlers found when they came here is like, oh my gosh, there's so much wildlife in the area. Bears, elk, moose, all the big game was here. And the Native Americans are like, yeah, we know. Go away. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) This is ours. (laughs) Oh my gosh, it's true. Well, and some of the trails that you hike in Rocky are trails that were used by the Native Americans to get from the low to the high country. Exactly. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, one of the trails, the Ute Trail. I mean, those people, I think there's evidence of the Ute Native Americans here, you know, from at least 1200 AD. Mm -hmm. You know, we have other archaic hunters and gatherers, other types of Native Americans from 6000 BC up to like 150 AD. There's stuff there like the Shoshone Indians, Comanche, the Goshute Indians, you know, Apaches were here in the 1500s and Arapahoes were here in the 1800s. So, I mean... Lots of different Native American tribes, they have roots here that are deep. And it's it's a great place to have roots. And it's amazing. The Native American history here is rich. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's a really neat place. And it's special to a lot of people. And so, like I've talked about in other parks where we visit this place and we have a vision of a peopleless wilderness that never existed here in Rocky Mountain, as far as we're aware, you know, especially since the glaciers receded, people have found this place to be beautiful and it has taken care of them because there's resources here. Yeah. It's awesome. So moving on from the native peoples, like in 1820, Stephen Long chaired an expedition out here and that's what Long's Peak is named after. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now there are a few other explorers that came through the area but my favorite explorer of the post-Civil War era, John Wesley Powell. Did he go through Rocky? He went through Rocky, no man. Way. Yeah, man. We do love him. Yeah, so he came through Rocky, which is awesome. And he did one of the first ascents of Long's Peak. Oh, really? Uh-huh. <laughs> the one-armed wonder, man. John Wesley Powell is the best. With one arm, he climbed Rocky Mountain he mapped the Grand Canyon. Dude, that guy was awesome. Yeah. So love John Wesley Powell. Now, the first woman to climb Long's Peak did it in 1871. Her name was Addie Alexander. Nice. So. Nice work. Way to go, Addie. That's awesome. Long's Peak, we should mention, is the tallest peak in Rocky Mountain National Park. It's over 14,000 feet. Which is a big deal in Colorado. Colorado has what's known as 14ers. Right. And some people try to summit all of them. I don't know how many there are. We should have looked that up. We should have looked that up. But Long's Peak is the one that's in Rocky. Yes. Okay. So people came here, like the Native Americans were here, and then some explorers came. It's a pretty traditional historical thing that happened here, you know, out in the West. Mm -hmm. Native Americans were displaced. And mainly it was by gold rushes, you Mm -hmm. know, settlers came. There was a Pikes Peak gold rush in 1859, which drew tons of people to the area. And that's just south of Rocky by a couple hours. So after the Pikes Peak area kind of was saturated with with people, you know, there was mining on the west side of the park from 1874 all the way through 1866. You know, there was mining on the east side of the park from 1896 to 1902. But also ranching was a big thing. You know, a lot of the settlers ranched in the area and there was a, actually something called the Grand Ditch, you know, in the Never Summer Range that took water 
from a stream that was the source of the Colorado River and diverted it for cattle and crops in towns such as Greeley and Fort Collins. So it took water from the west side and took it to the east side. Well, that's a pretty far journey over a huge mountain range. I mean, so all of a sudden, you know, you've got a ton of industries moving into the area. And with ranchers and hunters and miners, homesteaders, there came tourists. And then by 1900, there was a big conservation movement that was nationwide. You know, we already had Yellowstone created as a national park in 1872. We had Sequoia and we had Yosemite in like the 1890. You know, we had, we've had a few national parks starting to get rolling. You know, there's people like John Muir, there's Theodore Roosevelt, Gifford Pinchot, a lot of these big names in the conservation movement, they're happening and there's people talking about it. And we've talked a lot about just like, just, you know, your soapbox where people are appreciating the beauty in the area. And actually, when we were in Estes Park this last trip, we stayed in a hotel that had like a little news article that talked about Estes Park. And you Mm -hmm. kind of told me a little bit about that. Yeah, it was really interesting because when you travel the West, a lot of these towns, whether they're thriving or not, were a product of either mining, logging, or ranching. Right. Basically is how a lot of these towns got started. And this article that I read in the hotel, it's just like, it was like a decoration on the wall, but it was like an old... (laughs) newspaper article from Estes Park Gazette or whatever from forever ago. But anyway, it was saying how Estes Park actually is very strange. Um, And this Estes Park is the town that's right outside of Rocky on the east side. It's on the Denver side, the busy side. Mm -hmm. Because it said Estes Park actually didn't start as any of those. Right. Which was very typical for the time (laughs) as they were usually one or two of the three. (laughs) Right. Uh, But Estes Park, actually, like, when people got there, they just thought it was beautiful. Right. Which was almost unheard of, really, in that time period, because they had to live where it made sense, where they could make money and where they could make a living. But, like, the people got to Estes Park and they were like, well, this is the prettiest valley I've ever seen. (laughs) Let's stay here. Exactly. Uh, Which just wasn't really a thing. So I thought that was super interesting because a lot of the smaller towns and stuff that you drive through even close to Estes Park uh, there's some there's some ghost towns just south of it you know it, that were mining and so right. it's not like it wasn't in the area but just that particular area people saw the beauty and the value of the beauty right <laughs> and it didn't really have another purpose which i thought was really interesting exactly Yeah, the Estes Park Protective and Improvement Association was the one that kind of started a lot of the local conservation efforts. Mm -hmm. I mean, so these people, they got here, and I think the fact that they got there, I mean, luckily they were well enough off. Well, see, side note, this is also what it talked about, which I thought was really funny. There was a, he was like a duke from England uh-huh. that came over, saw Estes Park, and he bought like 14,000 acres of it that he wanted to turn into his own private, like, the, playground. Wow. Basically. So he bought it, and then they found that it wasn't a valid purchase, <laughs> basically. <laughs> so they took it away from him. Oh. But anyway, that that also, like, helped with the conservation of that area too because mm-hmm. it just didn't get developed as like he he thought he had bought it yeah <laughs> so yeah. i thought that was kind of funny but again like just people coming and recognizing this is one of the most beautiful places i've ever seen yeah exactly and you know doing what they can to keep it looking that way in their own way whether we agree with what they did or not but yeah I thought that was funny, too. That's so funny. Oh, my gosh. What a disappointment. I was like, did they compensate him? It didn't sound like it. Here's your... Yeah, this is an unvalid purchase and yeah. we can't refund your money. No refund. Terrible customer yeah. service. So it sounded kind of that way. I was like, oh, he really got the raw end of the deal there. What are you going to do? Leave us a bad review? Yes. Yeah. Duke, we already won the Revolutionary War. Yeah, you have no power here. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's so funny. So all of these people, they saw how there was mining. They saw people using resources. They saw affecting the land a lot. 
And so there was a really passionate, concerted effort to protect the area. There was actually like a motto that they would put up and this Estes Park Protective and Improvement Association would say that those who pull flowers up by the roots will be contemned by all worthy people. (laughs) (laughs) We should put that on signs all over the park. (laughs) That would be awesome. Oh my gosh. But honestly, knowing what we know now about the tundra and how harsh it is, it makes sense because in the tundra, some of these flowers take years to bloom. So if you pull them up by the roots, you shall be condemned. Yeah. (laughs) I like that. Yes. Uh, it's a little my- harsh, maybe, but <laughs> but uh, I like the uh, the feeling behind yes. it. The 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 emotion behind it yeah. is proper. Yeah. And then in 1909, there was a naturalist named Enos Mills, and he championed the idea of creating a national park here that would be the tenth national park. Yeah. And so it, he hoped. This was a quote from him. He said, "In years to come, when I am asleep beneath the pines." thousands of families will find rest and hope in this park you know so a lot of people had some pretty high-minded ideals for what they were hoping to achieve here he's got a great lake named after him too it's a beautiful lake oh it's so good job enos way to go mr mills yeah and so it's i don't know and then in 1906 that's actually when the antiquities act was Mm -hmm. passed yeah and then in 1915 Rocky Mountain National Park was officially dedicated. Nice. So it took a lot of people with some really passionate feelings to protect this park because by the time 1915 had rolled around and it was a national park, there were tons of private lands and little ranch houses and and places, lodges where visitors could come. It was all throughout the park. So they created the park despite the fact that inside of it, tons of people owned their own property. And so, you know... I'm sure that went over well. Yes. And and these lodge keepers, they built their own roads and trails and they guided visitors into the high country and they would drive off road and do lots of things. And so in terms of like our modern sensibilities about how to take care of stuff, we were just like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, please stop. (laughs) But then after, you know, World War II, you had all these people coming back from the war. And the National Park Service took the opportunity to all these people that were coming back from the war, they saw inside the national parks, they were like, there's a lot of crap going on here. Uh (laughs) And so a lot of the people that had this conservation ethic, they were saying, we need to improve facilities. We need to change how we're doing some things. And that's when, if you've ever heard of Mission 66, Mm -hmm. the goal was to improve facilities by 1966, which would be the 50th anniversary of the National Park Service. Yeah, we talk about that in the Parkitecture episode for a minute. Yes. So it's a pretty important thing. And during that Mission 66, in terms of Rocky National Park, one of the main efforts was to reacquire a lot of those private lands and private mm. lodges that were within the park so that the Park Service could kind of manage things in their own way. Interesting. Yeah. That's a good plan. Good job, guys. And as we talked about in the exploring episode, there are no longer any lodges in the park. Yeah. And so when they reacquired those lands, they took down those lodges. They took down, there was even a ski resort, I think, in in that one area. Yeah, Hidden Valley. Hidden Valley. Yeah. And so they took all this stuff down to bring it back to its original wild roots. Huh. And so they, you know, they put in some campgrounds and a few parking lots and some things here and there. But overall, they succeeded in their conservation effort of bringing Rocky Mountain National Park beauty back to its kind of original situation so that they could then provide that same beauty to future generations. Yeah. And I would say that the pendulum swung the complete other direction because now there's like no services in the park. <laughs> Which You're is lucky funny. to find running water. Yeah, yeah. But I do I do love that about it because it keeps it feeling less commercialized and more wild, which right. I do appreciate. And it's it's really cool that a park that has that many visitors can have that few services offered. Right. You know, they rely a lot more on the surrounding towns to take care of that instead of in the national park. So right. and I love that it's on purpose too. Yeah. 
I think this park specifically, it's up there with a couple other parks. You know, when we did the Yosemite episode, we talked a lot about the conservation ethic that goes into creating some of these parks. We talked about that with Acadia, how a lot of local people, it takes a lot of local organization efforts, and it takes some national effort to make a lot of these things happen. And their ideals were, you know, we want to preserve this for future generations. Mm -hmm. That's something that's really special about this park, and as well as some of these other ones that we've talked about. And it takes a lot of people doing a lot of work, convincing a lot of people that, hey, this is important to us. And And it should be important to you because it's affecting your posterity, basically. And now it's one of the most visited national parks in the country. Yeah. And And we get to enjoy it. You get to enjoy it. Everybody can come here and see these moundy mountains. (laughs) (laughs) And see the beauty in the small details. Because that's really what it's about. You get the big mountains, but that little flower growing in the tundra, that's the beauty of it. Thanks for exploring the national parks with us. Please share, like, and subscribe. And if you need any help planning your own trip, click on over to dirtinmyshoes.com. See you next week. Same time, same place. And don't forget to get some dirt in your shoes.